From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Monday, July 11th. The U.S. Department of Energy is building up the country's strategic uranium reserve. That's meant to provide a reliable supply of the material for energy and defense. Justin Higginbottom speaks with a regional uranium producer on what the policy means for business. The DOE will purchase up to 1 million pounds of domestically produced uranium as part of a program to ensure a supply of the material in case of market disruptions. Curtis Moore is VP of Marketing at Energy Fuels. His company produces uranium and operates the last conventional mill in the United States. That's in San Juan County. He says so far the reserve program is very limited, not enough to bring another uranium boom to our region. It's not likely to result in any new mining or processing of uranium or anything like that. But it's a very small step, but we, we, we think it's a very important first step to trying to restore these critical capabilities. The purchased uranium will come from America's only conversion facility. That's in Illinois. Funding for the stockpile comes from the 2020 federal budget. But it's not the only effort by the Biden administration to strengthen domestic uranium supplies. The infrastructure bill included $6 billion to support nuclear power plants at risk of closing. Moore says he's been encouraged by the administration. They clearly understand just how important uranium and nuclear fuel is on a, on a number of fronts, particularly in the fight against climate change, but also for national security and energy security purposes. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has added another reason for some politicians to back domestic production. The U.S. imports most of the uranium used to power reactors. Last year, 14% of reactor fuel came from Russia. 43% came from Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. That's according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. There's really only a few companies in the United States that have inventories that are eligible to sell, and we're one of them. And, you know, we're, we're, we're evaluating how much to sell. Stiff opposition remains towards new mining and milling of uranium in the country. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in White Mesa claims Energy Fuels Mill near their land has polluted the air and water. It's a claim Energy Fuels disputes. Meanwhile, in May, the DOE announced they are working on a broad uranium strategy to support nuclear reactors. They have yet to release those plans. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. Legislation to recognize same-sex marriage is back before the Navajo Nation Council. The tribe is based in Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. Both the council and the public had mixed reactions to the measure earlier this year. Emma Gibson of the Mountain West News Bureau has more. This legislation is a response to the Navajo Nation's 2005 ban on same-sex marriage. Councilmember Eugene So introduced the legislation. Here he is in a committee meeting this April discussing the need for marriage equality. This is all I ask of you, my people, all over. We know we're going to stop discriminating. It hurts me. In that committee meeting, council members voted against it. Many objections were based on some people's Christian beliefs, and so later withdrew it. The legislation also includes revisions to spousal property rights and employee benefits. It's set to be heard in a health committee first, but that date hasn't been posted yet. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Gibson. In his new book, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau, author Craig Childs takes readers on a journey, deeply examining certain rock art panels in the region. Laura Pomisano, with our partners at KVNF, speaks with Childs, whose home is in Norwood, Colorado. 
describe some types of rock art scattered across the Colorado Plateau. I guess the the basic kind are petroglyphs and pictographs, petroglyphs being pecked into a rock and pictographs being painted on it. And you you see hunting scenes, you see rituals, you see spirit figures, you see so much and you know, spirals all over the place. So many spirals, which, you know, you get into the, the meaning of them and meanings just trail off in multiple directions, but you know, spirals being wind, water, time, the movement of seasons. Uh, some rock art is, is associated with light coming through cracks or coming over boulders at sunrise and daggers of light landing on spirals marking certain times of the year. So a lot of different kinds of rock art. In your new book, you write, rock art has long been treated as a minor character in archaeology. Why is that? Probably because it's much harder to to define than artifacts or trenches where you can see stratigraphy and dates all lined up and arrowheads and potsherds and charcoal that you can date. And rock art is more like art. It's it's hard to define. You can kind of get timelines down by looking at different styles, but what did the original maker intend and how was this seen by the culture at the time? How is it seen by descendant cultures now? It's much harder to wrap your head around than an artifact that is really easy to define or relatively easy to find. How was rock art maybe used to manifest the needs and desires of its creators? Yeah, that's a good question because it's hard to tell what exactly it was, especially when you're going back over a thousand years, two or three thousand years. What did this convey for that person who made it or that those people who were here? It's hard to say, you know, what what is the difference between ritual and everyday life? And it seems like rock art is more about ritual and less about depicting necessarily events. Although there are there are many sites where you can say, okay, that is a group of people walking all in one direction carrying baskets on their backs this is a migration or this is a a trade route but then you're looking at a much older culture where the world is animated where everything is is considered alive the clouds are people the ants and the birds are people and rock art was maybe a different form of people not so much history as we see it now but living animated characters in stone How would you describe this new book, and what do you hope people take away from it? Well, this book was 30 years of intense travel in rock art landscapes, kind of boiled down to a year and a half of me just focusing deeply on certain panels, spending a lot of time there. And what I'm wanting the book to be is time spent in places with ancestry and watching the sunrise, watching days pass, watching light move across these walls. I guess I I want people to take away from this book that the rock art isn't just decoration or graffiti necessarily. It is a cultural story, many different cultural stories written across the landscape. And when you start putting them together, you realize that, oh, these are stories told from canyon to canyon and mesa to mesa. This is essentially a book. The Colorado Plateau is an open book and you may not know what you're reading. In fact, you won't know what you're reading, but you will know that these are important sites, that these had meaning, even if you don't know what the meaning is. Thank you for joining us, Craig. Oh, thank you.
Thank you for having me. Author Craig Childs discussing his new book, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. He spoke with Laura Palmasano from our partners at KVNF. And that's the KZMU News for Monday, July 11th. Get your community-powered journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.